Hi there, welcome back to the Shout out to KAMP Student Radio at University of Arizona and KPYT Pasquayaki Tribal Radio on the rest of the show. Anyway, <clears throat> we're listening to Letitia James Stuns Yvonne Trump. This is Christo, uh, posted one day ago. It's already at 178,000 views. This guy's doing a great job. Which are terrible, not only for old Donnie, but for his Donnie. entire family, his adult kids in particular. Is he and we have to focus in on the fact that they are crumbling. They are coming apart at the seams, and I don't think they're going to survive Are you this. sure about and that? And they're all eventually going to start tearing in to each other. But right now, at least, they're just ah. under a bunch of pressure, and they are cracking. And the first piece of this, we'll start with this, is just further evidence of the stupidity, the absolute desperate stupidity of Trump's Hail Mary begging at the Supreme Court, which will fail and might not even get a much of a delay. We'll talk a bit about that. And then get into some of the newer stuff, which is a brand new analysis of the evidence, a sifting through, and somebody dug up brand new evidence that hammers Ivanka and her brothers and her dad and tears down maybe the only argument they had in the civil case. Ivanka, her brothers and daddy, they are sweating it right now. And senior FBI official Chuck Rosenberg. Chuck, good morning. So uh, what do you make of this latest motion, uh, trying to get this all the way to the Supreme Court? Is it a dead end? Probably in the end, this isn't going to work out for Mr. Trump. Willie, let me explain why. First, there's no requirement that the Supreme Court even take this case. The issues are rather narrow and rather modest. Uh, and frankly, somewhat uninteresting, uh, at least from a technical legal standpoint. Number two, Willie, even if they take the case, there's no guarantee that Mr. Trump wins. And then third, even if they take the case and Mr. Trump wins, we're really only talking about a process to review documents that's ultimately going to end up in the hands of the folks who need it, the government doing the investigation. So rather, mar- rather narrow, rather modest. And I think in the end, Joe's instincts are right. Uh, as they often are, I don't see the Supreme Court. If you're someone who doesn't have any Medicare or Medicaid, you? you must see this. <clears throat> Americans with no Medicare or Medicaid are getting uh, overturning a conservative see? 11th Circuit on this rather narrow question. Just Chuck, let's underline, though, how thin uh, ice uh, Donald Trump is on legally here. He is right now fighting. He, he's not even fighting a central issue. He's fighting something should, that should be basic part of their pleadings, which is that these documents were declassified. That has been his argument. The special master said, okay, put up or shut up. If you declassified them, tell us when you declassified them. Right. This is this is not this is not a massive Perry Mason moment. It's like, okay, you declassified him. Okay, tell us. Yeah. And they're like, no, we're not going to tell you. Right here. And they're actually fighting. They cannot even believe the special master has embarrassed herself so much to say, oh wait, no, 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 no. They don't have to tell you whether they declassified them or not. And it's fascinating because, as you know, look at the statute. The classification status isn't in the end. Uh, even even going to determine whether he's charged or not. Yeah, that's such a good point, Joe, right? So one of the statutes at issue, one of the statutes on which the search warrant was predicated was the Espionage Act passed in 1917.
We didn't have classified documents in 1917. The classification system came into existence after World War II in the 1950s. Uh, and so it doesn't matter in the end. The important thing, though, and I don't want folks to lose sight of this, is that the government, in doing its today, tomorrow, can still use the classified information it sees from the home. So that work is ongoing, and that's important. But you're absolutely right. When a judge asks you a question, it's not the same as sort of pontificating on television like I'm doing now. You have to answer the question. You have to answer the question. And so when the judge wants to know whether or not these documents were actually declassified, Mr. Trump and his team have refused to answer that fundamental basic question. So on one hand, it doesn't matter. In the end, the case won't turn on the classification status of the documents. On the other so I just want to reiterate that, again, this bodes poorly in every case, but because we have to remember what the Trumps are doing is getting, or really not even getting, but further establishing a reputation for frivolous lawsuits at every jurisdiction. And judges talk and judges pay attention. And mark my words, all of these things are going to bleed into one another. And so lo losing in a civil case and losing in criminal cases and losing in you know, all of these document-related cases will have at least a cultural effect on one another. And right now, Trump's desperation with his own document case is absolutely being paralleled by what's happening in New York. And somebody did a deep dive analysis today, really dug up some brand new info that no one's really been talking about in the last little bit from the Dreams, which proves the only core defense Donald Trump and Ivanka and everyone else has been using. Because remember a couple of days ago, we talked about how Trump was going out there making the argument that he actually isn't liable for any fraud or any sort of civil issues in the state of New York. Because at the bottom of all of his reports, he put a little disclaimer saying, FYI, maybe there are mistakes in this information. And so because of that, me, Ivanka, my other sons, everyone else, we're not liable for any mistakes here. Do your due diligence, right? And everyone said that's ridiculous because, again, it's not an issue of, of mistake. It's an issue of a pattern of fraud that's being alleged. But it turns out that at least one of Trump's banks did suspect some issues, tried to reach out to Trump and his kids and his company, and they never heard back. It says here, they ghosted Deutsche Bank on answers about bad numbers. And this is from the Letitia James report. This is some brand new reporting, and it says, the Trump's biggest lender for years has been German banking giant Deutsche Bank. Nazi Deutsche Bank. Started by the Nazis. commercial real estate division have grown weary of lending to them. According to James, the, Trump then the Trumps then convinced the bank's separate private equity wealth division, which caters to high net worth individuals, to lend money for a slew of Trump projects, such as the Doral Golf Course in Florida and the old post office hotel in Washington, D.C. To do so, the family allegedly made false claims about how much of Trump was really worth. After media reports began questioning some of the basis of Trump's wealth and his assertions about his net worth, Deutsche Bank sent the Trumps a letter on October 29, 2020, asking about reported discrepancies. According to James, the Trump simply didn't answer for more than a month. Finally, in early December, Alan Garten, the Trump Organization's chief lawyer, sent a note back to Deutsche Bank, basically saying that they had only just gotten it, and then they immediately responded with another more detailed request for info, and a warning that Trump could be in default of his loans if he misrepresented his finances. On December 16th, Garten replied that he would try to get an answer for them. Deutsche Bank never heard back, according to 
Jesse James. That's the entire defense. Guys, if we get daddy, everyone is saying Bad if you feel there are issues, do your due diligence. Well, Deutsche Bank tried to do their due diligence. They looked at Trump's numbers and they said, based on new info, we got questions and we need answers. This charge after a ridiculous buy buying agent plan revealed by Pelosi's committee. What? <clears throat> this is women's spot. All in, all in with Chris Hayes. Not letting everybody in, but another leading reason, likely the primary reason, is because he wanted it full and he was angry that we weren't letting people through the mines with weapons. What? Because he could try to steal his weapons and hurt. Congress members in my tent, but I'm okay. leading up to the insurrection, the group's founder, Elmer Stewart Rhodes III, Elmer. indicated he had contact with a member of the Secret Service. Tonight, the Secret Service responded to that testimony, releasing this statement. And get this, they don't appear to deny these allegations. They say they said that they have been in contact with Oath Keepers in the past, and that it is not uncommon for groups to contact them about securing restrictions for events. I'm joined now by someone who was in the courtroom today for the Oath Keepers trial, Rachel Weiner. She's legal affairs reporter for the Washington Post. Rachel, thank you for joining us. Uh, first, give us, 
Give us context for this uh, testimony today about this connection between Rhodes and the Secret Service. Who, who testified to that extent and what was the context for that uh, testimony? The context is this is a former member of the Oath Keepers who is testifying that when he was a member, he Rhodes talked about having a Secret Service contact and that he heard Rhodes on the phone with someone talking about parameters for a rally, which appeared to be could be a Secret <laughs> Service agent. So that would be in line with, you know, what the uh, Secret Service is saying now, which is basically, listen, anytime anyone's coming to D.C., planning to protest we are interested in talking to them and basically letting them know what the rules are this is someone who broke away from the group they had three people testify today who broke away. have you heard of executive order 14067 most people probably haven't but it could completely upend american life you see section four of this order is set to completely overhaul our entire financial system Until after the Capitol 
send it along. Final thing for you, yeah, Ted Stevens, that, that's not going to go very far uh, if send it to him in the year 2020. Um, the, 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 there was another plea today. This is the first Proud Boys leader to plead guilty to seditious conspiracy. Jeremy Bertino, 43, of Belmont, North Carolina, became a potential key witness for the Justice Department against Enrique Terrio and four other Proud Boy leaders, some of whom had ties to influential supporters of President Donald Trump. I had to remind myself today that's a whole other case than the Oath Keeper seditious conspiracy case. I think if they, they try yeah, to... but it's very similar, and there are yeah. connections between them. Which, the most interesting of which is Roger Stone, who has come up on the very first day of this trial in D.C. that Stuart Rose was texting a group called Friends of Stone right around the election, a signal chat group, and talking about a violent resistance election. Another person in that group was Enrique Terrio, the longtime chairman of the Proud Boys. So... What Jeremy Bertino could say about the Stone-Tario relationship will be interesting, and what we hear in this Oathkeeper's trial about the Rhodes-Stone relationship will be interesting, and prosecutors have already indicated some convergence between those two groups, and Stone as being sort of a connector between them, so there could be more overlap than we know about right now. Wow, that's fascinating. Thank you so much, uh, Rachel Weiner. Really appreciate it. Thank you. With just 33 days left until the midterm elections, we've got a good sense of the key races that will likely determine the balance of power in the Senate. All eyes, of course, are on Pennsylvania, where Democrat John Fetterman has a real shot at flipping a Republican seat if he could beat New Jersey resident Mehmet Oz. In Wisconsin, the polls show a tight race between incumbent Senator Ron Johnson and his Democratic challenger, Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes. Ohio is not expected to be very competitive, but it is now a toss-up between Congressman Tim Ryan and J.D. Vance. Of what? course, Herschel Walker has been getting Tim a lot Ryan's of attention in Georgia, awesome. where he's fuck? trying to oust the incumbent Democrat, Reverend Ralph Lee Warnock. And rounding out what I think of as the top tier of competitive races is Arizona, where Democratic Senator Mark Kelly is being challenged by far-right election <laughs> denier Blake Masters. But then there are two kind of sleeper races that are bleeding in opposite directions. One on people's radars in the same way, but basically tied. First, the Senate race in Nevada, which right now looks like Republicans' best chance to flip a Democratic seat currently held by Catherine Cortez Masto. The other is the race to replace the the race to replace retiring Richard Burr in North Carolina. Recent political professionals have not been paying much attention to, but now looks indisputably tied. Trumpist Republican Congressman Ted Budd is neck and neck in polling with former Chief Justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court, Democrat Sherry Beasley, who now has a rare opportunity to flip a Republican seat in that state. And former Justice Sherry Beasley joins me now. It's great to have you on the program. Let me first ask... Uh, if you are surprised or not by where things stand in this race right now. Well, hi, Chris. You know, we're really excited about where we are. We uh, said all along, even as we were starting this race, that we were prepared to win, regardless of who our challenger would be. Uh, we now know that it's Congressman Ted Budd, who has been very much embroiled in the pettiness of partisan politics in Washington. And we're really excited that as we travel across uh, the state, we're a pretty big state with 100 counties listening to folks and talking about constructive issues and really feeling a sense of energy and engagement in this race. Uh, people are really very excited about where we are, um, and so we are really thrilled. Congressman uh, Bud uh, is one of the co-sponsors for the House version of a national abortion ban. 
Well, I have served as a judge and chief justice of the Supreme Court of North Carolina for over 20 years. Mm -hmm. And I've had a real respect for the rule of law and for uh, upholding the Constitution. And I know it's important to make sure that that uh, folks uh, apply the rule of law and that we have congresspeople and senators who are working hard to, uh, to, to make sure we pass legislation that works for folks here in North Carolina. The IRA also allows Medicare to negotiate drug prices down, and it does for seniors and caps insulin, but so many folks here in North Carolina need that kind of relief. And Congressman Budd, as we well know, has taken drug money and not voted in, in favor of making sure we lower drug costs for folks here in the state. Final question for you. Governor Roy Cooper is very popular in North Carolina. Uh, he's a Democrat in a very closely divided state. I think his approval rating is on 60%. What, what, what have you learned from his popularity? Well, I'm very thankful uh, that he's been supportive of our race, but I also know that I've been in tough races before, and North Carolina judges run in contested statewide elections. I've been elected twice statewide, and and I know that we can do this. We're seeing a lot of energy and support, and we're a diverse state. We are urban and rural, and it's been really important to be in every single one of our uh, 100 counties. It's exactly what I've done to make sure that we're listening to and really make a commitment to understanding who we are as North Carolina and my commitment to fight for all of us. Good evening from New York. I'm Chris Hayes. The Herschel Walker story keeps getting worse for Herschel Walker. Earlier this week, of course, the Daily Beast first reported that Walker, the Trump-endorsed Republican nominee for Georgia Senate seat, had paid for a woman's abortion in 2009. And the report contained lots of contemporaneous evidence that has not been reviewed by us here at NBC News. But it included the literal receipt for the procedure, the check Walker sent the woman, and even the get well card Walker apparently mailed her. looks like a signature. Now, as we've said... NBC News has not independently verified this story. This is a Daily Beast story. Walker vehemently denied the allegations when they first broke. He said he had no idea who the woman making the allegation could be. That seems a little difficult to believe, though, because according to a new report in the Daily Beast, the woman who says Walker paid for her abortion is also the mother of one of his children. Again, NBC News has also not verified this most recent report. In a statement, Walker said there was no truth to it or any other Daily Beast report. Now, to be clear, uh, there's absolutely nothing wrong with a woman choosing to terminate a pregnancy, nor is there anything wrong with that person's partner offering to pay for the procedure. Problem comes when the partner in question, Herschel Walker, is running on one of the most extreme anti-abortion platforms in the country months after the Supreme Court got rid of Roe. Walker said he supports a national abortion ban without any exceptions, including for rape and incest. He has compared abortion <laughs> and it is that crushing hypocrisy. Whenever a marketing company says they don't know, it really makes you feel um, it makes you feel like a trust to murder. And it is that crushing hypocrisy with real world consequences that inspired the mother of one of his children to come forward with this allegation. He seemed pretty pro-choice to me. He was pro-choice, obviously. Going on to say, quote, he didn't accept responsibility for the kid we did have together, and now he isn't accepting responsibility for the one we didn't have. That says so much about how he views the role of women in childbirth versus his own. And now he wants to take that choice away from the couples entirely 
Now, when this story initially broke, Walker put out a statement almost right away calling the story a defamatory lie, promising an imminent lawsuit against the Daily Beast for its reporting. Walker said the lawsuit would be filed tomorrow morning, meaning first thing Tuesday. Now Thursday night, so no sign of any legal action. And by this morning, Walker's tone had changed. His argument, if I'm tracking, and I'll admit it's a little hard to, is something along the lines of, I didn't do it, and if I did do it, would that really be so bad? Is there anything you need to be forgiven for vis-a-vis a woman whose name we do not know? Do you know who this woman is, and do you need to be forgiven? Well, that's, that's what's so funny. I'm saying I've been forgiven because of all the things I did when I went to my... Uh, Herschel Walker lied about his secret kids to his own campaign. campaign. (laughs) Haha. State's sitting Republican lieutenant governor are clearly getting a little nervous. Where's the thing about even though staunch Republicans buying agents? Pelosi buying agents. And is not running for re-election, doesn't have to share a ballot with Walker, which may be why he's willing to speak so candidly. But behind the scenes, for many of the terrible candidates Republicans are running in otherwise winnable. It's too late to do anything about it now. What's this thing about the uh, buying agents? Number one, garlic. It's packed with. Inside politics. John King. CNN. In two critical battleground states, Arizona and Nevada. Simply unfathomable horror in Thailand. An attacker uses a gun and a knife to murder at least 24 children. Oh. 
And another new claim against Herschel Walker. The woman who told the Daily Beast Walker Paper to have an abortion now says she is also the mother of one of Walker's children. The Georgia Republican Senate nominee says it's a lie, a smear. I'll say the same thing I said, that, uh, you know, I know this is untrue. I know Fucking it's untrue. Douche. They keep telling me things like that, and it's totally, totally untrue. <clears throat> I know nothing about any woman having an abortion. And, and uh, so they, they can keep coming at me like that. And, Fuck him up. Yeah, you want to distract people. Back to that story in a moment, but we begin the hour with new numbers, remarkable new numbers that speak volumes about how competitive key races are. Just a little more than a month to go in this incredibly consequential midterm campaign. Arizona and Nevada both have Democratic senators fighting for re-election. Both battleground western states also have big races for governor and for secretary of state. To call them close, all of them is an understatement. Let's walk through the numbers. Let's start with the Arizona Senate campaign. Mark Kelly is the Democratic incumbent. This is the biggest lead you're going to see as we walk through these polls. He's at 51%. The Republican Blake Masters at 45%. Just outside the margin of error. So you can say Mark Kelly is ahead. But it's very narrow and very competitive. He's a Democratic incumbent. Remember that. The governor's race in Arizona. No incumbent here, but the Democrat Katie Hobbs running against the Republican Carrie Lake. Carrie Lake at 46%. Katie Hobbs at 49%. The Democrat. Call that a lead, if you will, but there's no clear leader here because that is a statistical tie within the polls margin of error. We need to step it up. We all need to step it up. We move over to Nevada. Look at the margin. Catherine Cortez Masto is the Democratic incumbent here again, just like the Arizona race. This is critical. It's a 50-50 Senate. The Democratic incumbents need to hang on. But she trails 48% to 46%. If you look at the raw numbers among likely voters in Nevada, that's no clear leader. Again, within the polls margin of error, a statistical tie in this Nevada Senate race. And the Nevada governor's race, the Democratic incumbent there, Steve Sisolak, he's, the numbers are exactly the same. 48% for the Republicans, 46% for the Democratic incumbent oh in Nevada, Sheriff Joe Lombardo is the Republican candidate again. He's ahead 48-46. Statistically, that's a dead heat. Another dead heat in the Nevada governor's race. So what is driving this midterm campaign? Well, in a midterm campaign, a president's more first TikToks. midterm campaign tell, is approval rate. Tell the truth the about these star, motherfuckers. Is underwater in both of these states. 41% in Arizona, 41% in Nevada approve of Joe Biden's performance. But look, nearly 6 in 10 likely voters in each of these states, this approves of the president's performance. Another warning sign for Democrats as we get into the final month. Just look at this. What is the top issue among likely voters, those likely to turn out 33 days from now? Look at this. The economy and inflation overwhelmingly. 39% of Arizona voters say it's number one. 44% of voters in Nevada say the economy and inflation number one. Dwarfing abortion or voting rights. Dwarfing 
abortion and voting rights, perhaps issues that would play in the Democrats' favors. This is a troubling sign for Democrats heading into the final month. Let's get some perspective now with me to share their reporting and their insights. NPR's Claudia Gonzalez, Sungmin Kim of the incumbent in Nevada, Sheriff Joe Lombardo, is the Republican candidate again. He's ahead 48-46. Statistically, that's a dead heat. Another, no incumbent here, but the Democrat Katie Hobbs running against the Republican Carrie Lake. Carrie Lake at 46%. Katie Hobbs at 49%. The Democrat. Call that a lead, if you will, but there's no clear leader here because that is a statistical tie within the polls. Margin of error. Remarkably close in the race for Arizona governor. Similarly, when we move over to Nevada, look at the margins. Catherine Cortez Masto is the Democratic incumbent here again, just like the Arizona race. This is critical. It's a 50-50 Senate. The Democratic incumbents need to hang on. But she trails 48% to 46%. If you look at the raw numbers among likely voters in Nevada, that's no clear leader. Again, within the polls margin of error, a statistical tie in this Nevada Senate race. And the Nevada governor's race, the Democratic incumbent there. Steve Sisolak, he's, the numbers are exactly the same. 48% for the Republican, 46% for the Democratic incumbent in Nevada. Sheriff Joe Lombardo is the Republican candidate again. He's ahead 48-46. Statistically, that's a dead heat. Another dead heat in the Nevada governor's race. So what is driving this midterm climate? Well, in a midterm campaign, a president's first midterm campaign, his approval rating is generally the North Star, and President Biden is underwater in both of these states. 41% in Arizona, 41% in Nevada approve of Joe Biden's performance. But look, nearly six in 10 likely voters in each of these states disapproves of the president's performance. Another warning sign for Democrats as we get into the final month, just look at this. What is the top issue among likely voters, those likely to turn out 33 days from now? Look at this. The economy and inflation overwhelmingly, 39% of Arizona's voters say it's number one. 44% of voters in Nevada say the economy and inflation number one, dwarfing abortion or voting rights, dwarfing Abortion and voting rights, perhaps issues that would play in the Democrats' favors. This is a trouble. You really need to get yourself a coach. You need a professional who's already got results. Make sure you're clear what you want. In the Democrats' favors, this is a troubling sign for Democrats heading into the final month. Let's get some perspective now with me to share their reporting and their insights. NPR's Claudia Gonzalez, Sungmin Kim of the Associated Press, Solon Kano Youngs of the New York Times, and our CNN political director, David Chalian. Uh, David, remarkably close races, but if you look into the bones, troubling signs for Democrats. There's no doubt about it, John. And just where you ended there, I think it's critical. That overwhelming sense that the economy and inflation is the dominant issue. This is what jumps out to me at this poll. All the other issues are just not even in the same ballpark in terms of importance to voters. But when you couple that with the Next for us, a new twist and another. 
Chancellor bringing some new CNN reporting now on House Republicans and their post-election priorities. Some lawmakers telling CNN if they win the majority in next month's midterms, they could quickly launch an impeachment effort. Not against President Biden, they say, but instead the cabinet secretary in charge of the southern border. Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. He is, according to this reporting, the GOP's number one target. Our chief congressional person joins our conversation. Uh, I just want to put up here, um, why would you impeach Secretary Mayorkas? Uh, some say he has failed to maintain operational control. Bullshit, they're just trying to block some bullshit. He's accused of blocking certain controls, including Donald Trump's wall. Again, that's a policy difference without Republicans. How is that a high crime or misdemeanor? No fucking well, reason. Impeach Chad Wolf. He wasn't even uh, properly appointed. Acting. PHS. Why the fuck aren't they talking about that? Expel their own decision. Uh, however, at the moment, Tom Cole, who might have a GOP traders, 147. Uh, juice, shall we say, with the leadership as a Jim Jordan? Right, right. And I think all the talk that we have about Democrats having had momentum over the last, you know, last, last week and perhaps cutting the House, it won't matter at the end of the day when Kevin McCarthy is the Speaker, Republicans have the chairmanships, and they have subpoena power and gavels. And if they have a majority of the House, could pursue impeachment proceedings. But I think the Tom Cole perspective is interesting because I think 
that uh, there are some Republicans, not I don't know how many, but uh, there are still some Republicans that are concerned about overreach. You know, Republicans felt that Democrats overreached in pursuing the, the first impeachment of Donald Trump in particular. And so I think there are many people in Washington who are very cognizant of that political calculation. And so how does this work out in the sense that if you're Kevin McCarthy and you have a huge majority, um, or big majority, maybe you listen more to everybody. If you have a tiny majority, does your, is the message from voters don't go too far, or is the message going to end up being that means Marjorie Taylor Greene, Laura Bulger, Jim Jordan have more influence over you because there aren't quote unquote moderates around to say, whoa, slow down. Exactly. If they do have this thin majority has been projected in some cases, how do you wrangle everybody together with this thin majority to go after an impeachment, say, of Biden? Maybe that's too tall an order. Mayorkas, maybe we can get everybody on board. Yeah, they're just bluffing. It's just fucking maybe bullshit move. Before they look at folks like Biden himself. So it is really tricky when you have these extreme uh, corners of the party and it's a thin majority. You have a lot to balance as speaker in that situation. And we've already heard at the White House and at the Department of Homeland Security beefing up the legal staffs yeah. to, to figure this out, right? They expect this coming. Oh, there's been an awareness that that this could be coming, I mean, for some time now. Um, Republicans have also been clear about it, um, not only beefing up the legal staff, but also a certain anxiety about how much time and resources will need to be dedicated to going back and forth on the Hill, when you still do have a very real issue at the border as well. Um, it's fascinating if you listen to a lot of the members of Congress. How about the uh, human trafficking I charges? You know, not enough has been done. Thank you, Sheriff. Salazar of El Paso. about Biden's decisions there. Um, the fascinating thing about this issue is the White House is facing uh, pressure also from Democrats on the side and a progressive flank for actually prolonging the time that Trump era policies were at the border. That had to do as well with court decisions. So definitely an issue that's not going away or a concern going away. Quickly as we go, how, how much of this is um, we think there's grounds for impeachment? How much of this is the Democrats impeached Donald Trump twice? It, 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 that's what one of the concerns <laughs> Steve Womack told me. This is revenge-type politics that could actually Bullshit politics. Of those people who are pushing it, will he make those promises to assure him that, assure them that he will go down this route? And also, will Mayorkas stay on? If he resigns, it could be a moot issue. But his office tells us he has no plans to resign. Remarkable reporting. <laughs> watch 33 days to the election, and then we go from there. Important now. The January 6th committee will hold a likely final hearing. The committee advising. It will convene next Thursday, October 13th at 1 p.m. Eastern for what it says will be the final evidentiary hearing. Up hey, next. Hey, President sweetie. President Biden today voicing his disappointment at the OPEC Plus decision to slash oil production by 2 million barrels a day. But the president defending his trip to Saudi Arabia this summer saying the primary focus was not oil. There's a lot of alternatives. The trip was not essential for oil. The trip was about the Middle East and about Israel and, and rationalization positions. But it is a disappointment and it says that there are problems. Our great reporter is back with us. It says there are problems. The president there is the Saudis. It's others, the Russians as well, involved in OPEC+. Uh, he also says there are a lot of alternatives. The administration now has to worry anyway, but especially a month away from the midterm election. Gas prices are starting to trickle back up. 
What alternative? What can he do? Well, we've seen the administration. Saudis are doing it because uh, uh, Trump wants them to. For one, you know, to, to try and lower this impact. Trump asked him to cut, cut gas you know, prices on consumers. Gas prices and, um, go up. Let's be honest. This was something the administration was relying on. Um, and it was a bet on the president's influence over some of these, the, the Gulf region and Arab allies. And now you're seeing the frustration when that bet is not adding up here. Um, it's worth noting that uh, it should have actually been a surprise that OPEC would also act in its own interest here. And that maybe the sway, the pitch of trying to combat the impact of Russia's invasion in Ukraine would not sell that much. Let's remember, Iran is a member. Iran has recently sold drones to Russia. Also, you have one of Russia, Russia's deputy uh, ministers as well was involved in this meeting and the decision-making process here. And now you're seeing the result. And it's, it's complicated. No president of the United States, Democrat or Republican, can snap his fingers and affect the price of oil. It's a global market. You have these other regimes that may have grievances against him or against the United States more generally, but the optics are when he traveled to Saudi Arabia, he had that fist bump with the crown prince right there, uh, who is a murderer, um, and the president said, I had to do other stuff there. Republicans see this as T-ball. This is just in the last hour. Biden's energy policies have purposely crippled American energy production. Biden is begging Saudi Arabia and Venezuela for oil. Preposterous humiliating. This is what America last looks like. These dictators ignored by the police slash supply and energy prices soaring. Again, it's more complicated, but sometimes politics comes down, you know, gas prices are, we can show you the graphic, trickling back up a little bit. Bad trend for the president. Bad trend for the president. After a really great trend for the White House, and you know, the White House is very eager to take credit for gas prices when they were going down by nearly 100 days straight. So, of course, Republicans are going to seize on that and blame the White House when they are trending back upward. You know, we spent... Uh, some time talking about, you know, Herschel Walker's troubles and kind of that October issue. I think the October surprise for Democrats may be the rising gas prices. And because that is, when I mean, we talk about this all the time, gas prices are some of the most visual, you know, goods, consumer goods out there. You see the price every day as you drive up and down the roads. Really hard for consumers to know. And so the man who would be speaker, Republican Kevin McCarthy on Fox today says, elect us, things will change. <laughs> One of the our worst. first lines of work is to make America energy independent, and that means you'll pay less at the pump. America should wake up, because in 33 days, we need you to join with us. They knew their policies would bring it this direction. Uh, America needs to know, just to fact check there, just like Joe Biden can't do this, neither could, or could a Speaker McCarthy. That would just be the House of Representatives. No what are you what doing position, in? Whether you agree to disagree with at home, hey. you have to get the Senate hey. and President to go along. Unlikely. Right, exactly. But Republicans are in an advantageous position where they can sell this message of, look what Democrats are doing to your gasoline prices. We can turn it around, even if that's not based in reality. Huh. Next for us, a remarkable moment while the President was in Florida yesterday, caught on a hot mic, dropping the F-bomb. Accidentally on purpose. Coming our political radar today, President Biden caught on a hot mic during his trip to Florida to see the damage from Hurricane Ian. He's talking here to the mayor of Fort Myers Beach. Oh, the president also making an effort on that trip to put politics aside, standing hey. with the Republican governor Ron DeSantis, even calling the governor's <laughs> response to the hurricane, quote, pretty remarkable. <laughs> governor DeSantis also, too, praising his cooperation with the White House and with FEMA. The Secret Service acknowledging a minor car accident that involved the vice president was not properly reported on the chain of command at first. The vehicle carrying vice president Harry Ford was in a curb. 
The Secret Service, though, initially attributed that accident to a mechanical failure. That was updated later with the account that the driver hit a curb. No one was hurt. Vice President finished her commute in another vehicle. But the Washington Post reporting, the new Secret Service chief is concerned the incident was not properly reported from the get-go. Clemency requests, healthcare documents, IRS forms, election paperwork, those are the items the FBI is wrong with you? He's jealous, huh? He's so crazy. He's so crazy. He's so crazy. We can't go play. A special master is reviewing that trove of documents, even as the Justice Department challenges that process. Worth remembering, more than 100 classified documents found and recovered at the Trump's estate, now in the hands of the Justice Department. Thanks for your time. Wait, what was that? What was that about the uh, Justice Department and documents, stolen documents? Are in this advantageous position where they can sell this message of, look what Democrats are doing to your gasoline prices. We can turn it around, even if that's not based in reality. Next for us, a remarkable moment while the president was in Florida yesterday. Caught on a hot mic. Copying the F-bomb. Stopping our political radar today, President Biden caught on a hot mic during his trip to Florida to see the damage from Hurricane Ian. He's talking here. Text of that. The president also making an effort on that trip to put politics aside, standing with the Republican governor, Ron DeSantis, even caught another vehicle. But the Washington Post reporting... The new Secret Service chief is concerned the incident was not properly reported from the get-go. Clemency requests, health care documents, IRS forms, election paperwork, those some of the items the FBI recovered when it served its search warrant at Mar-a-Lago. That, according to a Justice Department list, made public this week. The collection even included Trump's resignation letter from the Screen Actors Guild. A special master is reviewing that trove of documents, even as the Justice Department challenges that process worth remembering. More than 100 classified documents found and recovered at the Trump's estate Thousands. now in the hands of the Justice Department. Thanks for your time. Hmm. Uh, inside politics, John King. Biden aside for a minute. Inside politics. Make that the Democrats somehow have to try to grab and bend in 30 days. Right. It's interesting how Democrats, John, is that if you look at the favorability better or are things getting worse? Only 6% of likely voters in Arizona say things are getting better. Only 15% in Nevada say things are getting better. You have 63% in Arizona, nearly 6 in 10 in Nevada say things are getting worse. Uh, that, if you just took the names out, forget who's on the ballot. That's a change election right there. That is a recipe of voters who are anxious. When voters are anxious, they want change. Right, exactly. So Good, Republicans so have sort of set their sights on that seat. And you see Democrats. why they have masters at 45%. Just outside the margin of error. So you can say Mark Kelly is ahead, but it's very narrow and very competitive. He's a Democratic incumbent. Remember that. The governor's race in Arizona, no incumbent here, but the Democrat Katie Hobbs running against the Republican Carrie Lake. Carrie Lake at 46%, Katie Hobbs at 49%, the Democrat. Call that a lead, if you will, but there's no clear leader here because that is a statistical tie within the polls margin of error. Remarkably close in the race for Arizona governor. Similarly, when we move over to Nevada, look at the margin. 
Catherine Cortez Masto is the Democratic incumbent here again, just like the Arizona race. This is critical. It's a 50-50 Senate. The Democratic incumbents need to hang on. But she trails 48% to 46%. If you look at the raw numbers among likely voters in Nevada, that's no clear leader. Again, within the polls margin of error, a statistical tie in this Nevada Senate race. And the Nevada governor's race, the Democratic incumbent there, Steve Sisolak, he's, the numbers are exactly the same. 48% for the Republican, 46% for the Democratic incumbent in Nevada. Sheriff Joe Lombardo is the Republican candidate. Again, he's ahead 48-46. Statistically, that's a dead heat, another dead heat in the Nevada governor's race. So what is driving this midterm climate? Well, in a midterm campaign, a president's first midterm campaign, his approval rating is generally the North Star, and President Biden is underwater in both of these states. 41% in Arizona, 41% in Nevada approve of Joe Biden's performance. But look, nearly six in 10 likely voters in each of these states disapproves of the president's performance. Another warning sign for Democrats as we get into the final month, just look at this. What is the top issue among likely voters, those likely to turn out 33 days from now? Look at this. The economy and inflation overwhelmingly, 39% of Arizona's voters say it's number one. 44% of voters in Nevada say the economy and inflation number one, dwarfing abortion or voting rights, dwarfing abortion and voting rights, perhaps issues that would play in the Democrats' favors. This is a troubling sign for Democrats heading into the final month. Let's get some perspective now with me to share their reporting and their insights. NPR's Claudia Gonzalez, Sungmin Kim of the Associated Press, Solon Kano Youngs of the New York Times, and our CNN political director, David Chalian. Uh, David, remarkably close races, but if you look into the bones, troubling signs for Democrats. There's no doubt about it, John and Politics, CNN, John King, CNN. Senator Mark, Senator Kelly. Okay, so let's see what else is going on. Oh, <clears throat> gonna wrap it up.
Uh, please wear a mask in public indoor spaces. Please call all three branches of government, especially the Department of Justice, and demand indictments. 202-514-2000. Demand that Trump and 147-plus GOP traitors are barred from office forever under the 14th Amendment. Call the Congress as well and nag them and nag them to death. 202-224-3121. Wear a freaking mask, idiot.